And we're here. Good morning, gentlemen. What's oh, happening, hey. team? Another another beautiful another beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yes, sir. Cue intro. Right. Intro roll. One day we'll have we'll have one of those. Yes, sir. We'll get we'll get that going one day. Yeah, we'll oh, need uh, young young Greece to flex his AV skills and uh, right. Get us a nice uh, get us a nice view open there. <laughs> version version 2.0 or 3.0 of the podcast at some point so awesome well guys why don't we kind of just jump right in i know we have some interesting topics we wanted to kind of cover i think a lot of us are actually kind of doing over somewhat the same thing but in different forms here so we can kind of get some great great discussion going great feedback i know sammy you mentioned you had a couple of things you wanted to start us off with so why don't you kick us off sir yeah, yeah, just just some uh, interesting new figures that came out this morning uh, in Cyber Reason's uh, April ransomware survey, which surveyed about fifteen hundred or so cybersecurity professionals across the U.S., U.K., U.A.E., and some other leading nations. Um, one of the interesting takeaways from the report for me personally was that you know the data strongly suggests that you know lightning does in fact strike the same place twice when it comes to ransomware. Um, so the report disclosed that about 80% of ransomware victims that paid their attackers were hit a second time with the ransomware attack. Uh, if you drill a little deeper into that, look at the frequency of events. Uh, the research showed that 68% said they were hit a second time within the same month as their first attack. And 50% wow. said that they were hit a second time within a week. Um, so of those organizations that paid the ransom, 48% said they were breached by the same actors who demanded an even higher ransom the second time. Um, and then of those uh, individuals that got breached the second time, uh, they are far more likely to suffer corruption issues during the decryption process. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can see here the, the ramifications of, of, of paying the ransom. Um, and so obviously there's a few issues that come to mind here. Uh, as to why that might be the case. So, you know, one, these are threat actors that don't necessarily go by your, your typical code of ethics. So, you know, they often attackers don't actually honor their promise to decrypt or restore, uh, restore the stolen data, um, thus leading to more downtime and uh, operational burdens there. Two, the data becomes corrupted, as we mentioned, during the decryption process. There's no customer service to save you here. Um, <laughs> well, theoretically, right? And what I heard, these, uh, my stuff won't decrypt. <laughs> I was going to say some of these RASP providers actually do have like a chat portal you can talk with the with the threat actors, with, which is kind of funny. But um, yeah, like the, the Amazon of, of uh, ransomware, right? But three, you know, you have attackers operate in a nation where actually paying a ransom is a criminal offense. Because some jurisdictions actually consider that as collaborating with an identified terrorist enter entity or criminal enterprise, and you're typically funding them and their criminal activities. Uh, so that, that you know, by letter of the law, they'll actually be—they uh, they won't even be able to pay the ransom, or if they do, they'll, they'll, meet, meet, uh, they'll be met with legal ramifications. Uh, and then, you know, by paying the ransom, you're just encouraging these people to do it over and over again, particularly on the same victims that they've already had success on. Um, so yeah, a lot of really interesting uh, data to back up the fact that you really shouldn't be paying ransoms. There's, you know, this is a topic that often was a little bit controversial in the past, but I think the, the, these days there's a more clear answer to this. Uh, and so there's a lot of things we can uh, do to prevent that, but you know, I'll, I'll stop here and let you guys kind of 
give your thoughts and whatnot. Well, well what how do you, many what of do these? Do? What's that? <laughs> you got the gun to your head, and the guy's saying, the person saying, uh, it would be a shame if this gun went off. You, you, you can't pay them. What else are you going to do? Uh, well, unless, you, unless you already had plans uh, beforehand of how to deal with that, assuming that you're in this situation and you don't have plans of what to do in that situation, what can you do if not pay? Right. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because the, you mentioned plan. I think the first thing is to have a business continuity plan, right? Most people don't even have a business continuity plan for when these times come about let alone having the uh, backup and restore process to be able to get back online in the, in the event of these. So really there's a few things you should do. Definitely, um, if you know, in most cases you should report these to the feds and, and try to hire a ransomware negotiator on, on behalf of the company. You should try and manage this yourself. Uh, but like we said, business continuity plans that includes a regular testing of your backup and restore process that way in the event you do get compromised, Instead of having to pay the ransom, you just roll back to ideally a state that was recently, you know, saved, uh, and then hopefully, you know, re reduce the impact of, of potential downtime. Um, and, you know, you could do this by performing regular tabletop exercises, right? You measure to measure and understand the potential impact. It's like most people don't even know what it would mean if the uh, uh, the compromise were to occur. What data is going to be breached? And how is that going to impact the business? So then that brings into mind the, the concept of segmentation and access control policies to limit the impact of breach. Uh, but you know, these days, another thing people are starting to lean towards and actually are being required to do is cybersecurity cyber insurance. Uh, now, you kind of have to be careful here because it can actually be used against you from a, from a ransomware perspective, but um, we're seeing this more often become a requirement and a means to kind of help mitigate some of the, uh, the impact of these breaches. Um, yep. So, yeah, quite a few things so we can do here. How many of these people restored from backup and just got hit again because they never cleaned it up or they never fixed the vulnerability? That's where my head goes back. So back to the business continuity plan and having it dialed in. I mean, if you do get hit, don't. Like, go set that firewall to block all traffic or unplug the internet at a minimum and then figure out where that vulnerability occurred. And if you can't, then you really need to do a, a bigger assessment overall and figure out what are the possible holes and at least get the most common ones knocked out, right? Like CISA, you can go to their website. They got the top 10 things you need to look at. Follow something like that from a remediation standpoint before you connect back to the internet because you're just going to keep getting hit over and over and over again. And if it's not that one gang that got you, another one might come along that, that goes after it. And then if you paid the first time, maybe that decryption key works a second time. You never know. They may not be that smart to regenerate a random key. You, you just don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things there, right? I mean, like you said, it's like, like once you kind of pay, you're then saying, well, like you paid once, well, the chances of you paying again, probably pretty high. Right. And to your point, it's like, Hey, are you actually fixing the leak or trying to just, you know, put, put things back into perspective, but sometimes you got to kind of take that step back and understand, okay, well, how did this really happen? Was it credentials? Did someone buy my credentials? Do I still have a, you know, leaks in the network, so to speak, or hooks into the network and, making sure you can clean those things up. And to your point, Sammy, it's like, hey, you have these plans and these DR plans, but 
you know, don't just put them in a filing cabinet and say, oh, we have it somewhere back there, but like actually take them out, dust them off, review them, you know, twice a year at a minimum, probably, you know, maybe even once a year, worst case scenario, but run through those things, right? Make sure they're relevant, make sure you know what to do. And, you know, to your point, Jordan, like if you have no idea what to do, you're going to just panic. And that's like the worst thing you can do. So if you can at least have some, you know, calmness to it and some, some sanity, if you will, but, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they're saying is I was saying like, there's no honor amongst thieves. And it's like, mm-hmm. Hey, well, you know, just because you were hit with one, you know, attack or one, you know, gang or whatever you want to call it, threat actor doesn't mean that the, you know, the one down the street, if you will, is going to do the same thing. And you know, why not? If they hear, Oh, like this person or this company paid cool. Maybe I'll take my stab at it. Right. And, right. Um, you, you know, <laughs> things like that. So uh, not surprising, sure, then- but it's, it's, it's scary, you know, even for uh, the, the initial compromise, the attacker, let's say they get paid off the initial ransom. Uh, maybe they come back, which I think was the primary subject of the report that you're reading there, Sammy. But mm-hmm. even if they don't come back a second time, they can sell that access information or even just the fact that this person is a hot lead. That's this right. is somebody that does pay ransoms. Uh, insurance yeah. was also brought up. I think that there's some there, there's some argument to be made that uh, cyber insurance has enabled ransomware to become more prolific because now there's a, an existing bucket of money that's mm-hmm. ready to be paid out in the event of these issues. Uh, and I've heard some discussion recently about uh, insurance companies potentially requiring more information from their clients in order to offer that or to uh, deny insurance claims for ransomware without demonstration that the company had proper preparations uh, in order to evade those things. It kind of goes back to like the seatbelt law. Uh, the seatbelt law, uh, the, the requirement to have a seatbelt in a vehicle in the United States really came about into implementation when the insurance companies started recognizing that they had to pay less money when there were vehicles that had the uh, seatbelts in place. But even then, having a seatbelt in a vehicle doesn't actually require somebody to click it, doesn't actually require them to use it. So whether it's deploying an EDR which may help uh, mitigate a lot of these kinds of attacks uh, or some kind of other proactive uh, policy, unless that is effectively put in place, uh, we may be just finding ourselves in the same situation here. Yeah, that's, that, that's an excellent point. And I think that's why you have to kind of take this defense in depth approach where you're looking at every single layer of your entire infrastructure and having a, a, a mitigating control at each place. That way, if one fails, uh, hopefully, other ones will 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 kind of uh, pick up the slack for it. Uh, and, and and great point there about insurance. And that's kind of why I caveated the you know it, this can be used against you. And it's it's a topic that I've kind of thought about. It's like how do we ensure anonymity amongst uh, at least internally amongst the uh, insurers so that way ransomware gangs can actually leverage this against the people who get our insured. So that's an interesting topic for sure. We can kind of go down the uh, another day. But also your point, Brian, I think was uh, really interesting as well about the, uh, the delayed detonation of, uh, of, ra- of, of, of ransomware. So that way, you know, it, it, you may actually have your backups themselves may already be, you know, poisoned or, or, or compromised. And in which case you have to really be able to perform a thorough uh, root cause analysis to be able to, to, to identify that. So having either contracted or internal uh, security team to regularly monitor and detect for these uh, for these people is, is essential, right? And back to that defensive depth. So, uh, yeah, yeah, lots of lots of good points made there. 
Well, if I can yeah. jump into mine, that kind of relates to uh, the topic that I was looking into today. Uh, there's a very prolific r ransomware group, which is commonly called Evil Corp, was previously known as Drydex. Uh, they originally came to prominence in 2019 when they were deploying uh, the, or excuse me, a little bit before 2019 when they were deploying Drydex Trojan, uh, which was actually a banking credential stealer. So it would infect uh, computers, mobile devices, and, uh, and steal banking credentials so that they could then liquidate the assets that are inside of those banking credentials. And they evolved, uh, began deploying the BitPamer ransomware, then Wasted Locker, Hades ransomware, and now they're using LockBit. And there's some interesting research that was just put out uh, connecting these dots and basically suggesting that since this group was actually sanctioned by the US, uh, that had made it harder for them to receive payment from some of their victims. It actually makes it a crime for uh, US-based victims to make payment to this organization because they're sanctioned. And so they evolved to deploying not their own ransomware uh, or ransomware that ties directly to them, but kind of working under this ransomware as a service model. This is something that's become so common now that even the big boys who previously had their own uh, in-house solution for deploying and uh, uh, collecting ransomware payments, now they're using this kind of affiliate model uh, they're working under somebody else's umbrella. And it was interesting in my research that uh, it doesn't seem like there are other ransomware groups which are similarly sanctioned. So I don't know what the distinction there is. I know that uh, Evil Corp has been uh, identified as collecting more than $100 million in ransom payments from dozens of victims. Uh, they have a spot on the FBI's most wanted cyber groups list. NCA in the UK lists them as the world's most harmful cyber crime group. They hit uh, Garmin. Uh, I think it was almost 8 million euros that uh, they were trying to extract from Garmin and uh, many other victims as well. Uh, also kind of interesting uh, tying into this, uh, the challenge of uh, mitigating and also prosecuting the perpetrators of these crimes uh, these people seem to have free reign to do what they want in the jurisdictions that they operate. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice has identified a handful of people that are associated with this, identified as leaders of the Evil, Evil Corp group. Uh, and there's YouTube videos of them spinning around Russia in their Lamborghinis. Um, and so, you know, beyond the, the technical measures, beyond the uh, planning, preparation and, and procedures that organizations need to have, I hope that there's some discussion about uh, policy. We need to have some kind of uh, governmental uh, way of addressing this because uh, even if it's not the Russian government performing these attacks, they seem to be protecting the people who are performing mm -hmm. these attacks. And uh, it wasn't too long ago that our government said, uh, if you harbor terrorists, we treat you like terrorists. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of similar to what we see going on right now. I don't know if that's the right choice, but uh, I would be surprised if those discussions aren't going on. Any thoughts? Well, that was actually my next question to you was going to be, are these a, a state-sponsored uh, group? And uh, just like off-surface level Googling here, it looks like they're uh, just, it looks like they're not, but I don't know if that's 100% the case. But regardless, to your point, I think it's, so, it's, it's uh, very... Uh, important to recognize that it seems like they're being protected regardless because these individuals are pretty public with their with their loot 
Um, and, you know, there doesn't seem to be any kind of ramification at the top end for that. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, that was, that was my question to you is, do you know anything about uh, there, whether they're getting any kind of... There have been other um, ransomware operators and other cybercrime groups that have been actually operating out of the FSB where American intelligence have been able to identify with the resources and assets that they have, have been able to identify specific personnel sitting behind specific desks in specific FSB offices. Uh, that isn't the case here, but they are still being protected. And it seems to be the general policy of the Russian Federation that uh, hack someone else and you're allowed uh, so long as you don't hack us or any Russian firms or anything like that. And I would imagine from a government policy perspective, regardless of what their official policy is, uh, internally, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if right. you are uh, disrupting, causing mayhem, uh, directing energies and assets to be moved towards uh, these criminals who are operating, then there are less uh, resources available for the, uh, the, the kind of uh, more military or governmentally sponsored attacks and things like that. So two wrongs make a right. Got it. Right. <laughs> Depends on where Something you are like and who you're friends with. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, what was it, like a few episodes ago we were discussing where, you know, there was the, whether it's real or kind of doctored video of the, you know, ransomware gangs getting taken down in, in those, you know, Eastern European type countries and the raids being done. And it was kind of like, well, you know, was this kind of for show to say, hey, no, like, you know, don't, don't look this way. And we kind of don't like condone this. Or to your point, is it like, Hey, you know, as long as it's just like, you're not kind of hacking us, then, you know, fine. So I have a thing, but either way, I think you bring up a good point is, you know, we're not going to just solve this problem with technology. There's no magic silver bullet that we can deploy to say, Hey, ransomware go away. I think, I think we all know that and security professionals know that. So it's a combination of being prepared technology and then process. And then, you know, really this is becoming a, you know, Oh, I don't want to say the word pandemics, but not the right word, but, you know, the type of plague almost, if you will, that ransomware is so relevant now and so top of mind for people. And um, it's so lucrative in some in some cases, right, which is kind of scary that it does attract this as a service business model. I mean, like you can you have one team or company that just sells credentials. You have another one that's expert negotiator. You have another one that's expert at deploying the ransomware. So, like, I mean, literally it's run like a company. and We've had this discussion many, many times before, and, hey, Brian, who knows? You, you might you might have a tech support one day, right? Like, hey, uh, your, your decryption key didn't work. Can you help me out? Oh, sure. Let's log into, like, you know, tech support, and I'll screen share and help you get your files back. Who knows? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to kind of have that stuff come up. So it's uh, definitely, definitely trending in the wrong direction, but, you know, there's going to have to be some major change across, you know, governments and policies to truly kind of solve this, so... Oh yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that uh, you mentioned you know the the kind of organization of these uh, of these organizations, the the hierarchies and the and the structures of these they really do operate like a business. They just operate mm -hmm. in a business that is uh, beyond the law. Uh, I don't remember if it was this Drydex Evil Corp or if it was a different ransomware uh, group, but you know you, you find in many cases they set up these front companies that act as technology companies, consulting companies, and they hire people openly and they advertise what they're looking for. And it's professionals like you and I, uh, and they advertise similar benefits as a company like ours would offer uh, working uh, nine, nine hour days with a lunch break, Monday through Friday, uh, holidays, benefits, 
uh, you know, they're probably even advertising they got a ping pong table in the in the break room right. kind of thing. It's it's really not that different. <laughs> so just goes to show you how uh, sophisticated these groups have gotten now that they can operate with such impunity that they really operate as as uh, professional organizations, even criminal professional organizations. You think there's like a, a hacker union out there that represents the hackers? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe, well, right? No, because every time it starts to get started, they whack it down. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was like I'm not sure how... Spotify more. Right. I'm not sure how uh, supportive the labor laws are for that. You might, uh, you might find yourself being exploited a little. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to jump into this one, and it's... Uh, not quite ransomware, but close, right? We're now getting into a data extortion group. So um, our friends, uh, uh, Caracourt, I'm going to always say this name wrong. I can never pronounce it right. But another, actually did the research on this one. It's uh, some type of a white looking spider. So the name actually kind of makes sense to me now where this came from. So I'm, I'm getting better at these, at these names people are coming up with. Um, but they take a little bit different approach, right? Not so much from a ransomware perspective, but purely the, the, data extortion standpoint. Um, so the FBI, the CISA, Department of Treasury, and a few others are now kind of warning about them. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily new, but they're kind of, you know, making a strong presence right now, right? So, um, but a lot of the, the methodology is the same, like we see in other cases, right? A purchasing stolen credentials, um, downloading the data when they've been in there, you know, cooperating with, you know, other um, entities to gain a foothold. Um, things like that. So, um, you know, this is taking a little bit different approach and kind of skipping the whole, you know, ransomware and, and you know, encryption factor and just saying, hey, I have your data. Um, how much are you going to pay me not to release it? And they, and they take it also another interesting step further and actually have these, you know, very combative tactics of emailing the employees, emailing the, the company's vendors, the vendor, the partners, the um, you know, bankers, the, the people investing in the company to say, hey, we have this data, um, pay us or we're going to release it. And kind of like we were saying earlier, there's even been some times or, you know, here where they're almost like going after like the same company along with another ransomware group. So it's like, hey, maybe there's two groups involved. One has your data and it's encrypted and one just has your data. So, you know, we're, now we're having a little bit different approach and they're almost like skipping the headache of, of the ransomware part because, you know, to be fair, I think people are getting better at the backups and recovery and sometimes having a little bit deeper foothold. Not everybody, but I think a lot of people are trending that direction. So they're saying, hey, look, I have the data, pay me or else. So a little bit different approach, but same type of thing we've been talking about here, you know, with Evil Corp and the others and, and whatnot. So uh, just a heads up on this one that, uh, you know, like you said, it's kind of like whack-a-mole, like you, you take care of one, you know, allegedly and you know, five more spot up type of a thing. So, well, once that information has been compromised, extracted from the organization, uh, who knows what they've done with it? It may mm -hmm. have been passed off to somebody else who's now coming yeah. and extorting you for that. Uh, there's no no way of knowing how many copies have been made or how many times that's been distributed. In fact, there's really not even any way of knowing whether or not they have your data for certain. Uh -huh. They can provide samples. Uh, they right. might even provide a significant data set. Uh, but that might be from a previous breach. That might not be from a new breach. You may have already dealt with uh, remediation, recovery, insurance, the legal side, civil side uh, for that breach, but now you're being threatened on that same information that was previously disclosed. Uh, and 
a lot of organizations wouldn't have any way of knowing whether or not that is actually the the same information repackaged as a new event uh, or whether it's false data and they're just claiming that they have it. Uh, You know, it's a lot of bluffing and a lot of threats, but there is real risk there. So it must be a very hard business decision to make. It's like a giant poker game, right? I mean, you're really playing the other person into your point. Like you could say, okay, well, you know, yes, I'm going to pay you. Like if you kind of go down this, this route, how do you really know the data has been deleted to your point? Like, I think we all know that there's really no magic delete button on the internet, right? I mean, like copies live everywhere, you know, things are sliced across multiple devices and clouds and things like that. So to say it's like hundred percent deleted, I don't know if you really believe that, right? So you almost have to kind of have that risk of saying, okay, if I go down, go down this path, what happens if it still comes out? And that kind of changes your mentality of saying, okay, well, if, if, if the data, data does come out, what's my financial risk? What's my governance risk? Do I have, you know, compliances I'm dealing with and things like that. And Brian, you and I kind of talk about that a lot, like not just the, the, the tech side of this, but the whole governance and risk side is a whole nother kind of, you know, can of worms to get into. So, yeah, I think it kind of comes back to, there's no like magic bullet. There's no easy button in this and there's no right or wrong answer. It's always like, it depends on what if. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would say even throwing in like a DLP solution is going to be able to, you know, identify all of the different areas that could be potentially damaging to the organization. So it's also kind of like an inventory management issue where it's like, how do you even know what data in your organization exists that could be potentially damaging? Um, so not only is it challenging in how do you actually deal with the situation that occurs, it's like how do you reduce the attack surface by identifying all the different stakeholders in your organization and ensuring that they're operating ethically and, and don't have any kind of damaging information that can come back to the company. So it actually is a very sticky situation. Interesting with Texas. And actually, like most don't know. I mean, I can't tell you how many times like, like, like we'll be on a call or ask somebody like, hey, like what's your most prized data? And they have no, no clue. clue. But also what's yeah. interesting is depending who you ask, you get very different answers. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you ask HR, you get one set. If you ask, you know, maybe the XYZ department, you get something else. But you ask the board, they might say something completely different. So it's like, well, who's right? Maybe they all are, right? So. There's no, again, there's no magic bullet and no right or wrong. It's, it's so fluid and, and whatnot. You have to be able to adapt and have, you know, defense in depth and all these things we always talk about, right. You know, practice, you know, tabletops, you know, consistent Mm -hmm. testing, ongoing testing, uh, penetration testing to see what's out there, patching your systems, segmentation, you know, ding, 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 that, that whole keyword. All those basic third party risk are, assessments because who yeah. says the data didn't come from a third party and you didn't Definitely. know, yeah, right? Sorry, like yeah, the auto logging you have doesn't show that anybody accessed it, but oh, they really got the master keys from the, the SaaS provider, right? Exactly. That's, We're seeing more and more of that. So continuing trends in 2022, I think, is the theme here. So, well, speaking of third parties, um, Broadcom is going through an acquisition of VMware which I kind of find interesting for uh, several reasons, right? So one, Broadcom did acquire Symantec, but then they quickly spun off the security services group to uh, Accenture. And then they did try to acquire Broadcom, but it was blocked by an executive order, sorry, Qualcomm. Uh, Broadcom tried to acquire uh, Qualcomm and they was blocked by an executive order and wasn't allowed to go through. 
And then they really were born uh, back in 1961 out of Hewlett Packard and really the, the semiconductor type of business. So it's, it's been interesting to watch them move into this, this type of arena. I, what I've been reading and, and see is that there's some good things that might come out of this. I know a lot of people are scared that what happened with Symantec, like I remember in a previous life that customers were trying to renew Symantec orders and they couldn't get processed and go through during the acquisitions. So I'm hoping that they've learned through that, like kind of leave that organization alone for a little while until your systems are ready to integrate yeah. and work, right? Those things don't happen overnight. They're two, three year integration projects. So hopefully they've learned from that. Um, but moving into uh, putting things like ESX into uh, the ARM processor looks very interesting for edge computing cases. And then all the security stuff that they already have with Symantec, maybe there's some good synergies there that could go in with the Carbon Blacks and the, the integration into ESX. Um, I, so it would be interesting from that. And then the other big rumor is that they want to accelerate going to a subscription service. So I do feel for those that bought it from a CapEx perspective because they're expecting to continue to have to pay just their their subscription or their software renewal fee essentially, right? But I think shifting to that model actually helps a lot from the cybersecurity side. So one, it gives the company um, better funds for their development teams to continue to work to remediate things, to build in some better security, et cetera, into it. And then it forces the customers to stay up to date. So if you look at like Office, uh, 365 as an example, you don't have to go update Exchange Server anymore. They kind of do that for you. And so we see that Azure and AWS and GCP have the, the VMware footprint in a lot of their cloud. So eventually that stuff can shift over where they're maintaining and upgrading it as you move into this as a service type of uh, licensing model. And then you're expiring off the older version so you can stay on the newer ones and, and continue to, to integrate. So I think it'll be interesting to see long-term how that really pulls off. I just think that they, they need to slow down a little bit from the integration piece and just make sure that they have a good de detailed plan and they don't or interrupt the current uh, process of things that, that are going on. I know a lot of people are nervous and scared with it, but I think there's a lot of synergies that they can bring bring into the pie here um, with VMware coming into this this fold. And I can't imagine they're going to get rid of that name. They're going to keep that name. I mean, that's yeah. part of the thing. They want that trademark behind all of this and then the integration into it and all the future IoT things that can come out of this with them being semiconductor and, and all of that tied together. So I think the future can be bright with a lot of that, to be honest. Maybe some more innovation happens in the carbon black side of the house too. Who knows, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Bradcom has obviously been known for hardware and, and uh, deep technology engineering. Uh, yep. I don't think they really have much of a software arm, uh, let alone a virtualization arm. Uh, no, no pun intended to use the term arm, but uh, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that they've tried um, a couple. It's like the semantics, the software arm they were trying to go after. Um, a couple other ones in the past, but mostly hardware. But I think they see like the writing on the wall that things are moving into this as a service model. And if you don't get into this now, then your relativity of a company kind of disappears. 
if you will, yeah. from that perspective. So I think that's kind of their their direction is, you know, cybersecurity is hot. VMware has portions of that. It's obvious with their acquisition of Symantec that that's what they were looking for as well. And it's that subscription-based model that, that I really think that they're highly interested in based on what I've been reading in the rumors out there that they want to accelerate that side of the, the business. So I just, I think that's the other side of IT when you buy the chips, right? So they can integrate that in tightly and then that'll only help their hardware business, right? If they start doing the ARM processor and some of the other things that they already make and do, it can only help accelerate that side of the business. So I think that's probably where the executives' minds were in going after this is, you know, true, they were manufacturing, but this is kind of the, the other side of the coin to help accelerate some of that hardware acquisition. Yeah, I think it was inevitable from a VMware going to or will be going to subscription, right? I mean, I think to your point, we've kind of reached this point now in the industry, not just even IT, but just in general, where people, whether they like it or not, for the most part, accept as a, as a service, whether it's like, you know, people go buy their cell phones as a service and they say, hey, every two years I get a new phone, kind of same thing, right? It's almost like forced refresh, mm-hmm. You know, Office does it. Adobe does it. I mean, there's so many companies that can do this now. Um, and, and to your point, it leads to a lot of, I'd say, quicker innovation. And the fact that it's like, hey, well, if I'm already paying for it and I can upgrade, you're more inclined to upgrade, I think. Whereas before, exactly. you're like, oh, man, I got to pay some extra fee to go from like version 10 to 11. I'm going to wait. And then that wait becomes like now you're on version 20. You're 10 revs behind. Next thing you know, you're like on you know, exchange 2003 getting zero day because you haven't updated in 20 years, right? So I think it kind of alleviates some of the stress of having to jump because you're already paying for it. Um, and, and this is kind of where, where things are going, right? This is why you know, software companies and security, security software companies are just eating everybody's lunch right now. I mean, look at even like Palo Alto, right? They've greatly shifted their market focus away from like the traditional firewalls. Yes, they still sell them. Yes, you still need them, but they're moving much towards that um, that, that whole subscription model, right? Like, hey, you know, deploy virtual security appliances because you can upgrade easier, you know, consume the credits, you know. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see VMware as a service for sale on AWS Marketplace or Azure Marketplace where you can say, hey, I'm going to consume, I want to keep my hypervisor as VMware, but I want to run it on somebody else's cloud. Great. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you see that type of offering. So I think it's going to really open the door um, and to your point, I think if they take their time in the actual integration of the back end, like that breaks everything. And I've lived through it in different different fashions too. But I think from a, a selling perspective, it's only going to be inevitable. So Exactly. Cool. Awesome. Well, guys, that was a, that was a great, um, great show today. Some, some good content out there. Um, anybody have any closing thoughts to lock us in with? What yeah, is RSA like week Dell right now? <laughs> oh, nice. Be Michael Dell. <laughs> he's he right. owns 40% of uh, VMware still, so he's going to get a chunk of change. He's doing okay. Put it that way. He'll be just fine. Reinvested into something else. But it is RSA conference week, so next week we should have a lot of great things to be able to talk about that have come out and been announced uh, this week. Yep. So we're excited about that as well for the next show. Awesome. Everybody, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, um, give us some feedback, and uh, take care. All right. Bye. See y'all. Stay safe in cyberspace.